Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Has Dr. Marshner returned to us? He has not, but Father Wagner has. Could you please come and, uh, and lead us in prayer, Father? We could all please stand. I'm Father Wagner, the parochial vicar here at St. Leo's. I welcome you all. Tomorrow is uh, not only the uh, solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, but it's also the World Day of Sanctification for Priests. And so I please encourage you to pray for holy priests tomorrow. Support all of us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Sacred Heart of Jesus, Immaculate Heart of Mary, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much, Father. He has come. He graced us with his presence. Please welcome back Dr. William Marshner. Yes, appropriately ferocious. All right. We are continuing on our way through the declaration of the Council of Trent on the sacrifice of the Mass. This is a dogmatic declaration. We looked last time at chapter 1, and now we are on our way through chapter 2. In this divine sacrifice, which is performed in the Mass, the very same Christ is contained and offered in bloodless manner, who made a bloodly sacrifice of himself once and for all on the cross. Okay? That is Latin sentence structure, okay? The one whom we have on our altar is the one who made the sacrifice on the cross. Let me try turning the sentence around, because I think this is how we would do it more likely in English. <clears throat> the very same Christ who made a bloody sacrifice of himself once and for all on the cross is contained and offered in bloodless manner in the Mass. Okay? That make, make it a little bit easier to follow? Hence, this Holy Council teaches that this is a truly propitiatory sacrifice. Okay? Look, if one and the same Christ who offered himself on the cross is now being offered up in the Mass, then if the cross is a propitiatory sacrifice, so is the Mass. Duh! So, Trent defines that point. 
since it is a propitiatory sacrifice, if we approach with awe and reverence, seer hearts, upright faith, we receive mercy, mercy, and we find grace in the form of timely help, in auxilio opportuno. Grace in the form of timely help. Now, for those of you who like the technicalities of this, what that means is that from the Eucharist, we get a benefit of actual graces. Okay. Not only divine mercy smiling upon us, but also actual helps in time of need. For the Lord is appeased by this offering and therefore gives the gracious gift of repentance whereby he absolves even enormous offenses and sins. Okay? We often tend to overlook the profound splendor of the gift of repentance. Okay? Repentance on our part is all God needs to forgive us the most heinous sins, monstrous sins, murders, treasons. Okay? No, I'm not suggesting that your forgiveness from Almighty God will exempt you from jail time and so on, because it won't. Uh, criminal law has its um, demands also. But as far as God is concerned, repentance will allow him to wipe the slate clean. And it's just amazing if you think about it, because all of our repentance is unbelievably shallow. You know what I mean? You're deeply sorry for your sin. you deeply? How many tears lately? Huh? I mean, the psalmist says, you know, I just feel like my bones are melting within me. I'm just falling apart. Now, that's a little bit deep. But what the most of us have is just this shallow, oh, gee, I'm really sorry I did that because, you know, you're so great, God, and I love you. Yeah. And the amazing thing is that God is able to take that shallow disposition on our part and work through it the miracle of forgiveness for just anything, outrageous things, huge things. It's amazing. And because repentance is so powerful this way, even in the shallow form in which we can summon it up, you better believe repentance is not simply our human disposition. It's a gift that comes into the soul by God's action. It's something produced by grace. Okay? It's a supernatural gift. Okay? This is the fundamental difference 
between repenting and feeling bad. Okay? Anybody without the least help of divine grace can feel bad about rotten stuff they've done. But repentance is something else. Now, you probably know a thousand examples of this from fiction, drama, and so on. Uh, the one that always comes to my mind is uh, the example of Tsar Boris Gudelov in the interminable opera of the same name. <laughs> Tsar Boris seems to be dying throughout most of the most of the of this long opera. It's a huge, 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 endless series of baritone arias in which, you know. Anyway, Boris's problem is that he had the genuine heirs to the throne killed. A couple of kids. Okay. He had them killed so that he could hold on to the throne and pass it on to his son. Yes. Well, now he's seeing visions of the murdered Tsareviches. And he feels rotten. But he can't repent. He's not really ready to... If you repent, you give up the throne. See? Yeah. Like if you stole a hundred bucks and you really repent, guess what? You give it back. <laughs> Otherwise, you just feel bad. Tough. So repentance is a genuinely supernatural disposition. And the mass is the source to which we can go and receive that disposition from God. Now, chapter 2 goes on. It is one and the same victim here offering himself by the ministry of his priests. One and the same victim who then offered himself on the cross. Let me untie that one. Here it goes again. One and the same victim who then offered himself on the cross is here offering himself by the ministry of his priests. Okay? Only the manner of offering is different. Okay? Only the manner of offering is different. Now, try to think of um, the basis on which you would count uh, one sacrifice, another distinct sacrifice, another one after that, the way the uh, priesthood in the Old Testament did. Well, you had a multitude of priests offering, and everyone had his own victim uh, to offer up as the, the, the sacrifice. Okay? There, I can't think of any way in which one person could offer the same bull twice. You know what I mean? So every time you change the victim, it's a different sacrifice. Okay? And I, and I can't think how more than one priest could offer numerically the same victim. 
If you change the priest, you change the offering. Okay. Well, on the cross, Christ as priest offers himself in his whole human nature to the Father. Okay. So he is the priest and victim, right? And in the sacrifice of the Mass, it's the same priest, this time acting through ministers rather than directly, and the same victim. Okay. The only thing different is the manner in which the offering is made. Christ offers himself on the cross in bloody crucifixion. On our altars, he offers himself in an unbloody manner. Exactly what that unbloody manner is, never mind. Uh, but I think uh, you can probably imagine what the future theological positions would be. They were debated in the aftermath of the Council of Trent. Uh, one of the most common, and I should think pretty obvious, opinion was that the, the unbloody manner is the consecration itself. Okay. In the words of consecration, our Lord's body and blood are consecrated separately okay, so that in the ritual they are made to be on the altar separately. This doesn't mean there's a real separation again in the resurrected Christ. Okay. Having died, he is now immune to death. He doesn't die again. But remember, the death is immolation, not oblation. Okay. On the cross, he offered himself to the Father in the bloody letting go of his life. On the altar, he offers himself under the appearances of bread and wine. Okay. So you can see the absolute centrality of transubstantiation for our point of view. How in the world does the same victim and the same priest get to be involved in Sunday morning mass who was involved in Paris, Palestine in 33 AD? Answer? Transubstantiation. Okay. The bread and the wine, their substance is destroyed or vanishes or whatever you want to call it. And they are replaced by the very substance of our Lord. So there he is. All right? Now my favorite way of looking at it is this. Look, the Mass starts out looking for all the world like it's going to be our sacrifice. Okay? The parish lays in a supply of hosts. There's a supply of wine. In some of the Eastern Rites, lay people bring bread from their houses, bake, bake bread for the consecration. But these things are brought to the altar. As anybody would bring a gift to the altar to make an offering. All right? So it looks like we're going to offer up to God our stuff. 
and at the command of Christ, the priest says the words that make him speak in the very person of Christ, and Christ evacuates our gift and replaces it with himself. So that what starts out looking like our sacrifice is, thanks to transubstantiation, God's sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice. So that's the key role of the consecration and transubstantiation. Does everybody see? Okay. Now, there are refinements, theological refinements on this, which I don't want to go into, because I don't think any of them really merits a whole heck of a lot of discussion. A lot of people had the idea that, no, you, look, you can't have a real sacrifice unless something gets destroyed. Okay? In other words, if, something, if, 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 if it's not the case that anything is destroyed, there's no real sacrifice. You say the Mass is a real sacrifice, then something's got to be destroyed. Well, it's not our Lord being destroyed all over again, so what's being destroyed? Some said, hey, the substance of the bread. The substance of the wine. Bye-bye to that substance. Huh? Well, it's a theory. I don't much care for it, but if you like it, it's fine. It's perfectly orthodox. Anyway, the benefits of the sacrifice, chapter 2 now goes on. Namely, the sacrifice of blood are received in fullest measure through the bloodless offering. There is no question that the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross is a bloody sacrifice truly propitiatory of God the Father, truly winning for us uh, graces, forgiveness, um, new life, but then comes the reception problem. Okay? I mentioned this last time. The reception problem is called, in technical parlance, the subjective redemption. Okay? The redemption is worked out there in objective fact in history on the cross. The question is, how does it get to you? How do the benefits get into you? And don't say, well, just because it happened. That's not true. Okay? Because there are lots of people all over the world who are currently on their way to hell, even though that sacrifice has happened. It has happened. They were intended beneficiaries, but they're not real beneficiaries. Because they have not done what it takes to receive the benefits, the fruits of our Lord's sacrifice. Well, the next sentence in the Council of Trent is this. The way you get those benefits to the fullest is by participating in the renewal of the sacrifice in the Eucharist. Okay? This, of course, is why Vatican II can correctly say that the Eucharist is the summit and the foundation and the summit of the Christian life. Because the whole supernatural package that Christ willed for us and won for us by his death is uh, touched by us 
most fully in receiving the holy elements consecrated at the Mass. Okay. Now then, because the Mass does not detract from the sacrifice of Christ, but makes the fruits of that sacrifice acceptable to you here and now. Trent says, it's quite properly offered, not only for the sins, uh, needs of those of us who are alive, but also for those who have died in Christ, but who are not yet fully cleansed. So anyone who has passed from this life and still has um, deeper repenting to do, more satisfactions to make to God before he or she is ready for the beatific vision, any such person can be benefited by the sacrifice of the Mass. Okay, chapter 3. I'm done chapter 2. Any questions on chapter 2? It's a biggie. The rest of the chapters are short. Not to fear. Chapter 3. It has been the custom in the church to celebrate Masses from time to time in honor and memory of the saints. This council teaches that the sacrifice is not offered to them, but only to God who gave them their crown. So the priest doesn't say, hey, Peter, hey, Paul, I'm sacrificing this to you. That's a quotation from St. Augustine, anyway. I threw in the word hey. <laughs> you just got the vocative case in Latin. <laughs> um, no priest ever says, this is for you, Peter, this is for you, Paul, uh, uh, Cecilia, whoever. Not at all. But we thank God for the triumph of those saints. And we implore their patronage. Okay? We recall their memory on earth in hopes that they may deign to intercede for us in heaven. Now, the real reasons Protestants have trouble with this, as you know, is because they don't really believe that the saints are available to intercede for anybody. Okay? If they did, they would have as much and as ready recourse to them as we do. Okay? And uh, in the early days of my becoming Catholic, I found this absolutely delightful. You know, as a Protestant, of course, I had a great devotion to St. Paul. St. Paul is every Protestant's favorite saint. You better believe. I Oh, gee. Well, up until that time, if I wanted somebody to pray to me, I had to go down the hall to some roomie or, you know, some Joe Doak say, would you say a prayer for me? Think how exciting it is to get St. Paul to pray for you. Ah! No more fooling around with Joe Dokes. <laughs> Chapter 4. Holy things must be treated in a holy way and this sacrifice is the holiest of all things. So, 
that it might be offered worthily and with reverence, the Catholic Church has for many centuries fixed a venerable Eucharistic prayer, quite free from error, containing only what savors in the highest degree of the holiness and devotion which raises the minds of those offering to God. It contains the Lord's very own words and elements from apostolic tradition. Okay. So in order to preserve the atmosphere of holiness that befits the all-holy sacrifice that's taking place in the Mass, the Church has fixed a Eucharistic prayer so that people don't get up there and rant and rave ad libitally. Do you know that adverb? Ad libitally? Uh, ad libitally is the fancy way to say as they damn well please. <laughs> I remember the early days of... Uh, the euphoria after the Second Vatican Council. Yes, I was alive even then. And, uh, oh, gee, everything was, oh, geez. The, you know, the, 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 the butterfly had been released from, from, from the, what is that stuff that butterflies are trapped in? Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and now the, the, the butterfly of liturgy was going to flap its gorgeous wings again. And it turned out that the flapping of the wings was Father Dimwitty getting up there and saying whatever came into his head. I was at a Mass, quote-unquote. It was at the uh, annual meeting of some big liberal Catholic association. Oh, I know. It was the National Association of the Laity. N-A-L. They disappeared soon after. But at the time, they were still in existence. And they had this highly experimental priest from this highly experimental parish. He was there to say Mass for them. And, uh, I mean, it, it was a wing-ding, whatever came into his head. And uh, he, passed, um, uh, he passed bread all over the place. And it was crumbly, and there were cr crumbs everywhere. And I thought, oh, Jesus is going to be horrible. And then, <laughs> Father Ad Libital forgot to consecrate the wine. <laughs> so that was the end of my worries about a major sacrilege there. I mean, basically, nothing was consecrated. The jerk couldn't keep his mind on it for five minutes. So, very wisely, the church has fixed a standard form of Eucharistic prayer. All right, now, don't get me started about the three new canons that we have in the Novus Ordo. Okay? This was written at the time of Trent, when the only standard canon in the Western world was what we now call canon number one. There were little variations from place to place, but very small. All right, and the point here is not that, you know, canon number one is fixed forever. What do you think? It's that the church, in her wisdom, specifies a set form for this crucial prayer.
so that she has some control over the quality of the sentiments expressed. Chapter 5. As human nature is such that it cannot easily raise itself up to the meditation of divine realities without external aids, Holy Mother Church has for that reason duly established certain rites so that some parts of the Mass should be said in quieter tones, others in louder. It has provided ceremonial, such as symbolic blessings, lights, incense, vestments, many other rituals of that kind, from apostolic order and tradition, by which the majesty of this great sacrifice is enhanced, and the minds of the faithful are aroused by these visible signs of religious devotion to contemplation of the high mysteries hidden in it. Now, remember that Trent put this chapter in his declaration on the Mass because Protestant bodies at the time were rejecting everything that looked like ceremonial. Okay. They thought we should reenact on Sunday mornings something as close as possible to the Last Supper. So picture some spartanly furnished upper room, okay, and nobody's wearing anything special, and we just yeah, here's the table, and oh, well, this is my, my, this is my, and, and 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 so it's real simple, okay. Well, if the mass were nothing but a memorial of the Last Supper. And you can understand what that would be. Suppose uh, in your family you had had a particularly memorable feast on, I don't know, somebody's birthday five years ago. And you had all made a pact. This was so great that every year we're going to do this again. We're all going to get together. We're going to serve the same Dishes and 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 we're all and we're just going to reenact it. All right. But the mass is not a memorial, a remembrance of the Last Supper, right? It's Christ present again, offering the sacrifice of Himself to the Father. So it is the supreme act of our religion, the supreme sacrifice that takes away the sins of all men. And so, it shouldn't make you think when you go into the church that, oh, this is cute, this is relaxing, it's loose in my tie, we'll all sit around, have a nice sup-sup together. No, no, no. I want to call your attention here, because Trent is not, getting into the details of what's good and bad liturgy. All right? That's another story. That's for canon lawyers and and, uh, uh, people who write rubrics and so on and so on. This is not getting into the details. But this is setting the general guideline. Okay? 
what would your state of devotion be if you were kneeling at Calvary? Okay? So, let's get the rock music out of here. Let's get the guitars out of here. Let's get the burlap banners hung with snibbles of toilet paper saying rejoice or whatever. Let's get them out of here. And let's have the best that we can do that's worthy of this event. That's, that's the church's concern. That's why she's always had uh, blessings, candles, incense, vestments. Is there some worldwide crisis in the incense market? <laughs> I mean, did the price of incense suddenly go sky high 25, 30 years ago? Is that why we never have it in church anymore? Most parishes, incense, what's that? Gee. Chapter 6. The Holy Council would certainly like the faithful present at each Mass to communicate in it not only by spiritual devotion, but also by sacramental reception, so that the fruits of the sacrifice could be theirs more fully. But, as this does not always happen, the Council does not condemn as private or illicit Masses in which only the priest communicates. Rather, it approves and commends them, for they too should be considered, get this, truly communal masses. There's no such thing as a private mass, really. Although we use the term. Trent says, really no such thing as a private mass. A, because a mass is offered by a priest who is an officer of the church, a public fun functionary of the church. He's not up there in his capacity as a private person. This is one of the real good reasons to make sure they keep wearing their vestments. Okay? Oh, yeah, I remember in the aftermath of the council, oh, God, vestments were passe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, boy. Do you remember masses at the beach? Yeah, a priest would come out in a bathing suit. Oh. Yeah, it was bad there for a while. It was bad. Yeah, then there were the priests who got the idea that clown suits would be nice. Clowns are sort of non-threatening figures, and it can make you, you know, feel good and, and maybe love God a little bit to, yeah, we, we had a guy here in Northern Virginia who wore a clown suit. That was then. Mm -hmm. But if they are wearing their vestments, you can see they're public functionaries of Holy Church. They're not there in some private capacity. They're doing an act of organized religion, an act of the church, moreover. No Mass is private in another sense. There is never any such thing as a Mass in which the priest prays for himself alone. Right. This is again one of the good 
effects of having a, a set canon where the words are going to tell, okay, now we pray for the living. Now we pray for the dead. Now we pray for our relatives. Now we pray for the for intercession of the saints and so on and so on. So the text tells you who all to pray for. Yeah. And the masses' benefits are intended for all those prayed for. Right? So there's the communal element. It's celebrated by the church for the church. Triumphant, suffering, and militant. Right. Okay. So let's not have any more of this nonsense about private masses. Chapter 7. I don't know if it's even worth going into. But apparently Zwingli and a couple of other guys got the idea that it was some terrible corruption to mix water with the wine in offering the Eucharist. I, I guess they thought, you know, that Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper were, you know, strictly, uh, I don't know, 30-proof guys, you know, <laughs> mix nothing. Well, as a matter of fact, it, it was common in, in Palestine to, to dilute, and throughout the Mediterranean world, to dilute, dilute the wine with water. Uh, you, you practically had to do that, A, because you couldn't drink the water alone. Oh, it was filthy. I remember a professor of mine one time talking about English poetry. English poetry in the Middle Ages. He said the reason that poetry is so interesting and so good is because they were all crocked. 90% of the time you could not drink the water. It was ale from breakfast to bedtime. So, yeah, but, you could, yeah, but you could spare yourself the, the worst of all that by diluting the stuff. And that, apparently that was standard practice. And uh, St. Cyprian tells us about the, the, the dilution is proper. But anyway, Zwingli got into his head that that was a mistake, and so the council slapped that down. The council draws attention to priests of priests to the rule of the church that they should mix water with wine to be offered in the chalice because Christ the Lord is believed to have done so and because water came from his side together with blood. And this sacred sign is recalled by this mixing. Okay. Further, in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 15, uh, peoples, nations, tongues are represented by waters. Okay. We first uh, hear about these waters when the, 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 the scarlet woman, the scarlet whore, is sitting on waters because she's the Roman Empire, she's oppressing peoples of a gazillion languages and tongues and, and so on. And then in chapter 17, verse 15, we're given the explanation of that. The waters on which you saw the woman sitting are peoples, tongues, nations. All right? And our Lord, in taking on our nature, think of it, he gives himself something to sacrifice to God. Something he can give up to God, sacrifice to God, offer to God. Couldn't very well offer his own divinity, could he? But he could offer his human nature. And by taking on our nature, he became a participant, if you will, in every race and tongue and nation. 
because our nature is common. Yeah? And he brings all of those nations and peoples into himself by the incarnation and even more importantly, brings them into himself in communion. By communion, we are incorporated, reincorporated, or deeper incorporated into his mystical body. Right? All right. Chapter 8 brings up a subject which was a sore subject some years ago and still is in some quarters. What about this vernacular business? Chapter 8, although the Mass is full of instruction for the faithful, the Council Fathers did not think it advantageous. Expedire. They did not think it expedient or advantageous that the Mass should be everywhere celebrated in the vernacular. Each church in its place should retain its ancient rite approved by the Holy Church of Rome, mother and teacher of all the churches at the same time. Lest the sheep of Christ go hungry, the Holy Synod instructs the shepherds and all who have responsibility for souls to explain frequently during the celebration of the Mass some of what is being recited in the course of the Mass. In other words, there should be regularly homilies on the various parts of the Mass, certainly the ordinary, maybe, maybe the, the interesting uh, special prayers of saints' days and so on. And um, I, I'm sorry, I just have to say this. Nobody thinks they need to have anything explained to them if the Mass rolls past their ears in Dick and Jane English. You know what I mean? There, there's a kind of English which is just too everyday and too informal to give people the idea that there's something that needs to be explained here. Okay. And I think it's very interesting. There is no great church in the Eastern tradition that has its mass in the vernacular in the sense of the language of the street. Okay? The Greeks are still saying mass in New Testament Greek. Well, they, they, they mispronounce it abominably. But the grammar is still the grammar of New Testament Greek. They don't talk that way. They can barely understand it. Russia. Oh, Russia. Yes. Vast Russia. Well, most of Russia to this day, the liturgy is in Old Church Slavonic. Does anybody who speaks modern Russian readily understand Old Church Slavonic? No. I asked a friend of mine one time who knew this stuff, do you think it would be like our going to church and hearing liturgy in Chaucerian English? He said, worse. <laughs> yeah. And as a matter of fact, it was this way from the very beginning. What was the first Bible that the church used from which readings were taken, psalms were taken, and so forth and so on? It was the Septuagint. Okay? 
And Greeks thought that the Septuagint was the funniest sounding Greek they'd ever heard because it was shot through with Hebrew idioms, Semitic turns of phrase. It sounded exotic. Yeah, that's how the Mass should sound to this day. A little exotic. Yeah. Okay. Chapter 9 simply says, well, there are lots of errors in the church these days, and so we've all agreed to condemn the following mistakes in the form of holy canons. A canon is a sentence put together by an ecumenical council that begins, if somebody does or says so-and-so, and ends with, let them be anathema. Okay? That's a canon. If anyone says that a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God in the Mass, or that the offering is nothing but the giving of Christ to us to eat, let him be anathema. There's Luther, bang off, first canon. (laughs) Number two, if anybody says that by the words, do this in remembrance of me, Christ did not make the apostles priests, or did not lay down that they and other priests should offer his body and blood, let him be anathema. It's Luther again. Luther thought that do this in memory of me didn't mean anything but eat it. Remember that? Number three, if anybody says the sacrifice of the Mass is only one of praise and thanksgiving, or that it's a mere commemoration and not itself appeasing, or that it avails only for the one who receives and should not be offered for the living and the dead, dot, 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 let him be anathema. Canon four, if anyone says that by the sacrifice of the Mass, blasphemy is committed against the holy sacrifice of Christ on the cross, let him be anathema. Hmm? I buy Zwingli. And by the way, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I mean, I love anathemas. <laughs> but, but, but you have to understand, anathemas... Saying, let him be anathema, doesn't mean burn him. Doesn't mean skin him, flay him, burn him. It means we give up on him. Okay? We wash our hands of them. They're out. That's all it means. Number five. If anyone says it's an imposture for masses to be celebrated in honor of the saints and to secure their intercession with God. Let him be anathema. Number six, if anybody says the canon of the Mass contains errors and should be abolished, let him be anathema. We're talking about canon one there. Number seven, if anyone says ceremonials, vestments, external signs are incitements to impiety rather than instruments of devotion, let him be anathema. Okay, now see, this is, this is where it gets delicate. I need a lawyer now. Because lawyers understand the problem of, you know, uh, taking a, a past decision and applying it 
to up-to-date circumstances. You know, I never heard any wacko liturgist in the aftermath of Vatican II say that though the vestments and the prayers and the candles and so on of the old mass were instruments of impiety. No. But I heard him say, I heard them say that these were the badges and tokens of triumphalism. Yeah. The, 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 this was a, a sign of a unacceptable compromise with the world of riches. Yeah. Anything gold and pretty. Oh, we, we had to be so poor, everything we used to celebrate with was as ugly as sin. Simple, ugly. Remember the clay chalices? Oh. Now, eight. If anyone says the masses in which only the priest communicates are unlawful and should be abolished, let him be anathema. If anyone says, this is nine, if anyone says the rite of the Roman Church in which the words of consecration and parts of the Eucharistic prayer are said in a low voice should be condemned, or that Mass should only be celebrated in the vernacular, dot, 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 let him be anathema. There it is. The nine canons of Trent, like the cat of nine tails, huh? The nine canons of the Council of Trent scourging the errors of the reformers on the holy sacrifice which wrought and now applies to us our salvation. Thank you all very much. The fellows on the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshall. That was enjoyable, wasn't it? Um, we're going to take a short break. In the early church, um, communion was not very frequent. And nowadays, you can receive communion at Mass daily. How did that come about? We do not know uh, what the situation was in the very earliest days with respect to frequency of communion. We do know how things were in the late 3rd and early 4th century. Because at that point, the church is coming above ground. Remember, it had been under persecution. The reason masses were held at midnight is because that's when Catholics could sneak out in the dark. So we still have Christmas mass at midnight. Easter too, some of us. Ah, Old ways, old tradition. There would be only, often only one priest in a town. And we didn't have a public building of our own. You'd have to gather in somebody's house or out in a park in the woods or something. And it just couldn't be risked more than once a week. And even, uh, even in those days, it wasn't the case that everybody went to communion every time they went to Mass. Because there was discipline about that. If you had such and such sins on your conscience, you stayed away from the Holy Communion. Later on, we were able to come above ground, acquire our own buildings, and build up the numbers of the clergy. And so you would have uh, a main bishop in town, maybe an auxiliary or two, 
20, 30 priests. Okay. And you still wouldn't have Mass every day except where the bishop is. The bishop in his cathedral would have Eucharist daily. But out in the parish churches, they did not. And one of the reasons for that was because uh, at this time, you still had a fair number of priests who were involved in marriages. And they could not have relations with their wives on the eve of celebrating the Eucharist. So let's put it this way, if you celebrated Mass every day in one of those parishes, that priest would have uh, a rather frustrating uh, time of it. One of, the, uh, one of the problems, this is one of the problems that was solved by the uh, discipline of the celibate clergy. And uh, by the way, the regulations for that go all the, way back, all the way back to how priests had to prepare to make sacrifice in the book of Leviticus. So with a celebrate clergy and enough clergy, eventually Mass becomes more than once a week in more and more churches. But uh, the priest is supposed to celebrate at least once a day and with permission. But see, um, you're going to have as many Masses a day as it takes for each priest in the parish to have his Mass. Okay. Dr. Marshall, I'm curious on the Council of Trent, uh, what role, I know over the number of years you said I think there were three different popes, so what was the role of the popes in terms of, you know, the uh, input during the deliberations, and did they have veto power, uh, or did they have to prove uh, these uh, dogmatic declarations and everything at the end? Uh, veto question never came, that never arose. The role of the Holy See was to call for the council, persuade the bishops to come, persuade the various kings and emperors to let the bishops come, and then um, uh, just approve the documents as the council produced them. I don't recall at this point any time at Trent where there was a real problem where the pope felt he couldn't approve because Trent did its work extremely well. And all of these documents are just brilliant theological syntheses and just bang, 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 right on, point, point, point. In my readings, I came across a canon from the Council of Trent. And I don't know the exact quotes, but I did not hear you quote it. And I wanted to know what number it was and why it was glossed over or not mentioned, and it's to the effect that if anyone should try to change any part of the Mass or tr change the words or say that it, we needed a new Mass, let them be anathema. It's not from Trent. No? No. That is in the disciplinary uh, legislation of Pius V. Remember that uh, Trent confronted a, a very troublesome situation in Europe there had been a tremendous growth of uh, variety and diversity over the course of the Middle Ages. Every major diocese had some customs and special rights of its own with the reformers running around and all kinds of amateur theologians and 
would-be destructors of the liturgy running around, Trent thought it necessary to take the whole liturgical situation in hand, took a curial version of the uh, Latin Mass and turned that into the rite that we call today Tridentine. But that work was done by Pius V. And uh, any discipline like that, whoever dares to change his own, would have been in the bull of Pius V and not in the Council of Trent itself. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshner. All right. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.